I'm always asking myself, like, how can I do less? And I think in key moments, sometimes we're so ready to do, but the answer might just be to sit with the question. That was Opulence Abundance, my guest for today's episode. Opulence is a speaker, conflict navigator, and healing professional. As a queer intersex person of color, born and raised in the Carolinas, Opulence learned how to diffuse conflict and build community at a, at a young age. In 2014, Opulence moved to California, and in 2016, they graduated from the University of Southern California with their master's in social work. They went on to work in grants management and healthcare, creating one of the first healthcare programs for people exiting incarceration. Opulence now works with individuals and groups to navigate conflict in new ways so they can break patterns, harness their power, and change the world. Opulence, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Like, we randomly found each other on a Substack meet and greet thread. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was such a weird, like, like scrolling through, you know, Substack runs the gamut too. So there just was like this like queer thread and it was like an oasis. <laughs> it really was. And the people I found on that little, that little thread have just really been amazing, especially because yeah, when I scrolled other threads, I was like, oh, there's a lot of really different people here. Really yeah. different. <laughs> I love it. Um, actually, why don't we just random? Why don't you start talk talk about your Substack and your and your podcast? Like, just before we get into like who you are, like, what are you putting out in the world? Yeah. So my Substack, I, I think as is the way I had this whole idea, and I spent maybe months and years being like, oh, what will what will be the theme of my newsletter? And I came totally. up with this idea that's like. Oh, well, it'll be called Lessons from the Fire. It's going to be about conflict and transformation because I am a conflict navigator. And I think being present with people in conflict multiple times a week always yields so many insights. Um, mm. And But what's kind of happened is just in an effort to post weekly, I do post a lot of insights on my Substack. But it's not necessarily focused around conflict. I think very much I just go through like my photo roll. I post whatever photos I've taken and just talk about whatever I'm thinking about. Um, and I often come back to the themes of like community and friendship and like very, I think this past season, I've been writing a lot about being uncomfortable um, or things not going the way we expect. And then I also have a podcast with my friend Nisha and uh, we, it's called Earthworm Slumber Party and we explore big ideas playfully and we, each episode, one of us tells the other person a story and we just reflect on it together. Yeah, super cute. Like I've said before, like you two have great friendship energy that comes across, which is, it's just nice hearing people be nice to each other. <laughs> That's so soothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Okay, so let's let's take a step back. Let's talk a bit about your origins, like specifically for this podcast. You know, we're focused on 
often the inter intersection between spirituality and queerness and other aspects of your identity. So what are your spiritual roots like? I was born in a Hindu household in North Carolina, and I was raised in South Carolina. And I'm actually, when we moved to South Carolina, I began, my family began going to this temple. And um, that's where I took my first ever yoga class. And my first ever yoga instructor is still around. Um, and I still connect with him around spiritual education. So mm -hmm. that was like my formal spiritual education, I guess, is going to this temple until I was like 10 or 12. And um, as I've aged, my relationship with Hinduism has definitely evolved. I think I'm more caste aware now. Mm -hmm. And I think talking about caste is really important. And I see it missing in so many spaces around yoga, around Hinduism. I think it's so important for us to name caste. And then um, my mom is such a powerful woman. She always was just very open-minded around spirituality. And we had books about Buddhism all over my home. And it wasn't until recently that I realized that like many people look down on Buddhism or people can be really mm -hmm. righteous in their Hindu faith and really separatist. So I didn't realize what a gift I had in my mom for allowing me to also engage with Buddhism and other forms of spiritual thought and to kind of just hold them all with reverence. Um, and that was definitely a theme in my spiritual origins. Like my grandfather, um, like very infamously within our family, would just drive around on Sunday to different places of worship and would like sporadically participate. And my family loves that story. So I'm like, wow, my family's kind of weird. You know, they're kind of doing their own thing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, okay. I, I feel like... I don't want to just like touch on cast and then just like <laughs> yeah. it disappear. Can you, I feel like I just recently figured out how impactful caste systems still are not just in around the world, but also in the U S as well. Can you like, how does this still show up in your, your communities, whatever your communities might mean? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I really appreciate you for catching that. The first thing that's coming to mind is a quote from the fat sex therapist on Instagram, Sonali, who's so brilliant. And her, someone once asked her, like, what do you think about yoga? And she responded, she was like, I think, you know, I don't have a particular opinion on this other than yoga is a vehicle for fascists for Indian fascism. And I was like, oh, mm. that is such a good point. That like, it's really critical for us to recognize nationalism and what does, when we uplift Indian spirituality without awareness, what nationalistic powers are we feeding? And what is the undercurrent? And it's, I think the truth is a lot of people want to see India as an escape or an alternative to a current reality rather than as a culture and country that is in the modern day and is also a part of our current political landscape. 
all that to name that the prime minister of India, Modi, is um, seems to be creating a lot of violent policy towards Muslim people, um, is extremely fascist, is a right wing figure. And the Hindu Tava, the right wing Hindu movement mirrors the right wing movement in the United States. I think it gives extra context to the wellness to like um, QAnon pipeline, right? To understand that that's also being lived out in real time in Indian politics. So I think, I think what's what, and all of this is obviously imperfect. Like it's just my understanding of things, which is imperfect. But what I also understand is that I believe that yoga while having a significant tie to Hinduism, many people have shared with me that these movements and practices were actually taken from the Adivasi or indigenous people of India. Um, And there is a way where caste systems target indigenous communities. So I think there's there's something really deep going on there where it's like, oh, these people are actually the origin of this medicine, but are aggressively pushed away from it. So I think that's important to acknowledge. I think what's important to acknowledge is also that caste continues to exist in the US. And I'm really grateful to the work of Equality Labs and the conversations that they host, which are all available on their YouTube, where they explore not only caste and how it shows up in the US, but also how, the many different identities and people who live in India, including people who were brought to India to serve as slaves that have their own cultures. And so just holding all of these pieces, I think in my own life, it was very possible for me because of my caste location to not know what caste was for years. But I do know that especially because tech spaces in the U.S., are so emergent and um, do include a lot of people from India, whether they're overseas or whether they're coming to the U.S. for a particular position. I um, Equality Labs has done so much work to uplift the way that caste discrimination continues to play out in America, especially in tech spaces, and very often goes over the heads of the white supervisors. And so I also think it's been powerful to watch different states in the U.S., add caste-based discrimination um, to their laws and something that they can recognize. So those are kind of the ways in my own family, I have been the one to sort of initiate these conversations around caste. Um, And I really have, what has helped me is listening to the stories of Dalit people, people who are deemed low caste. um, And just to be explicit with it, like, the label of being low caste is to be told that you are spiritually filthy or broken, which is such a deep thing to put on someone. And I think really does relate to queerness, this idea of being broken. And I think like essentially one of my big points of solidarity with um, Dalit people is that the level of violence they endure in India um, I've heard of things like cow honor killings, like upper caste people will be like that person killed or harmed a cow. And then they'll all mob and um, attempt like 
physically harm that person. Um, the other thing that comes up is just that for whatever reasons, this system of hierarchies has labeled these people as disposable and a lot of people act out aggression towards them. Um, and to me, it is a mirror to how trans people are in the United States in some ways. Just when I hear about incidents of mob violence or even street-based violence, um, it really resonates with my own experience in the States. I think that learning when you ask people things like, what's your last name? Where in India are you from? I didn't know that those questions, which my dad would just ask all the time, like those can be ways to subtly figure out someone's caste and location. So actually talking to my dad in front of my whole family and being like, you know, I'm learning that to be in true solidarity, we want to be sensitive to these questions, um, has just been one way to show that caste solidarity. That makes sense. Yeah. It And it seems very much tied to like asking people about their, their gender identity or, you know, their, their um, sexuality and stuff like that. It's not, it's just not stuff that you casually ask because <laughs> it's, it's personal. So, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about it that, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to make a, a one-to-one comparison, but just when you're talking and making that connection, that's what came to mind. Like when you're probing things that have to do with um, people's sense of, of worth and, and safety too. Yes. And I think just to round out the comparison, when I did talk to my dad about it, he was so um, initially defensive mm-hmm. and he was like, what? I'm meeting them. I'm saying, hi, how are you? What's your name? You know, I'm not trying to do anything. And to me, it was an interesting example of how behaviors that enforce power dynamics can be carried subconsciously. And I really see that also playing out gender, that like there's some idea that these things are obvious and this is just what you ask people. And it's, you know, I think the invitation is always to listen when we get this feedback and to be more thoughtful about those questions. Yeah, that's great. So um, you've talked about briefly that... um, one of the things that you wanted, two of the things that you wanted to talk about was sharing your journey of becoming a healer and um, moving towards Buddhism. Are those part of the same story? Or Yes, yes, they are. Thank you for naming that. I think another piece of just contextualizing my origin story sure. is that I'm an intersex person. I'm not, necess- I'm not trans. Well, I am trans, but you know, they're overlapping circles, but to be an, in for me, what it meant to be intersex is that I was assigned female at birth, but I had a lot of secondary sex characteristics that were more like typical of men. And I would even say that some of those characteristics were spiritual. Some of them were how I like occupied space in a room. Um, but the most obvious and concrete characteristic I had was a lot of body hair, especially facial hair. And so I'm like this little Indian kid 
growing up in upstate South Carolina and I'm like super hairy. And it was just one of those moments that was, um, I think intense through me because I'm already different from my classmates due to race, but I guess I just connected so much to be a healer of like, whether it's external or internal, there is something about you that is different and it separates you from people, but it also draws people to you. And so that was like one of my very early life experiences where I was like, oh, I bring out a lot of energy in people because very often early in life, it was like my teachers or my friend's parents who would have really big reactions to my facial hair. Um, And I would just, I could tell that I was challenging some of them or making them very uncomfortable. And as I aged, I came to understand like, oh, that's just a part of how I'm going to move through the world. Like, I'm just going to bring out a lot in people. But my grandmother grew up with me or she lived with me and she, um, she's actually a fiber artist and she and my mom would knit and crochet hats and blankets for the hospitals. Like they would just donate them in mass. And my grandmother would actually like pray and knit these really lightweight blankets. And I think it was one of my first understandings of energetic healing. And it was just important for me to uplift that like, I think I was learning healing modalities from like my grandmothers and my mom from a really young age, just in how they did things. Um, And I think it's important to say, because for me, it was really easy to overlook that aspect of my story. And then when I went back, I was like, oh my gosh, actually, um, my grandmother was my first energy teacher and she was a really good teacher, you know? So that is kind of the base of my story. But the other pieces I just wanted to offer was, you know, I taking, mm, when I think about how I became a healer, there were all these small moments of learning and connecting but I continue to come back to the truth that what makes me a healer is my desire to heal. It is actually like my open heart and my love for other people. And it's so important for me to name that because I, I, I just feel that way also with other people when I see their heart and I'm like, oh, you're a healer too. And people are very often like, no, I'm not qualified. Don't put that on me. And I'm like, I don't know. There's a big heart here. (laughs) It feels kind of healing to me. Um, The other fun part of my story is, you know, I'm going through life. I'm like learning different things. I'm like, okay, yes, I clear. Clearly there's something a little extra going on over here. I'm going to claim that I'm a healer in 2020 in the midst of, I was living in LA and there, there were in the aftermath of the protests when like the national guard is in LA and they're like putting up all these curfews, me and my roommates decided to go to a really special river. And, um, I'm laying in this river, not a cell phone in sight, just relaxing. And I start hearing what sounds like a sprinkler system. And I'm like, Oh, what's that doing in Ojai? Um, And I did the one thing you're not supposed to do, which is I leaned into the sound. I was looking for it. I got closer to it. 
and in nature you're ne you're never supposed to do that you want to slip like slowly back away from the sound but i came face to face with a rattlesnake um whose mouth was open and i like gazed into this rattlesnake's open mouth as it hissed at me and then i got really scared and i ran away screaming and we <laughs> got the hell away from that river <laughs> it was so scary and from that moment, I had an overlap of, I think, both a little bit of a mental health episode and a spiritual awakening. And the two often go hand in hand. And in that moment, I was able to see that I had always been channeling, but I didn't know what it was. And I was just able to see a bigger picture. I also began to just have more powers that were very available to me. Um, I ended up, I ended up having a traumatic spiritual experience that actually forced a lot of my power. Like it, it created a blockage between me and some of these gifts, which I feel pretty okay with. Um, and it, it began my journey to finding real teachers that could hold me. I have since that moment thought a lot about what it's like for many of us when we receive our spiritual inheritance, when our gifts come online, sometimes suddenly, and we don't have the elders or the community infrastructures to always support us. And that can be really difficult. So I found teachers immediately and really started focusing on grounding myself, my energy, um, and my work. And so, yeah, that's a little bit of my healer origin story. I'm a little overwhelmed in a good way. <laughs> I know, it's a lot. Yeah. I, well, okay. Starting from what you just said, I think I really feel that I don't want to call it like a lack of leaders. I think that there's a lot of leaders that are making themselves known, particularly on social media, you know, and for a lot of us that are like in places, like I'm, I told you I'm currently stuck in Indiana. I feel a little bad saying that in public on this podcast in case there's other people in Indiana. I was like, no, I'm not stuck here. I'm choosing it. And I'm like, I'm not choosing it right now. Um, but you'd mentioned on your podcast, how you're, you're in a place that's more um, you're back in South, South Carolina, so you're connected to family, but not necessarily where a lot of your, you know, like chosen community is. And I'm feeling that right now. So it's not a place where I have a lot of in-person connections to people that I would consider spiritual leaders. And it's partially why I started this podcast, because I feel like so many of us just need to hear the stories of other people's journeys to figure out what's possible, mm. but that doesn't mean there's like handholding available. So I'm really curious, like, how did you learn who to trust, you know, when it came to these things that you were, you were going through, like whose guidance to trust and yeah, let's start there. That is such a good question. I think that 
in when I think back to that moment and what you're sharing, yeah, what really comes up in my chest is like, yes, our elders, there's been a disconnection to our elders um, and mm-hmm. sometimes the conscious disempowering of our elders. I feel that in a spiritual sense. And also I feel it in the work I do because I think the way that conflict used to be navigated was with the guidance and wisdom and the very gentle handholding of our elders, right? And so when I go into organizations, very often it's a crisis of wisdom. It's a crisis of like, who do we turn to? And people find themselves in that moment turning outward externally. Um, which is understandable. So when I think about what allowed me to trust, I will just be transparent that my first teacher I sought out, which I did kind of being like, oh, this this situation is has actually gotten out of control. Like I was managing it on my own. I was maybe waiting for the right person to come along, but I think I need to be more proactive. So I did two things. The first thing I did, and this was in when I was receiving pandemic unemployment, so things were a little juicier financially. Um, the first thing I did, though, was look towards any community groups or like even looking at people's courses that I could enroll in long term. I did like the DIY PhD and other things I can't really remember. I think I did like a music class with my friends. But I was just like, I think I just need to anchor myself in community spaces. And that community has always been um, my safety guard because I'm like, okay, if I'm around a lot of homies and we're all doing different things and I'm sharing about my life, honestly, I think we can catch the red flags together. I can't always Mm -hmm. catch them on my own. Um, But the first spiritual space I joined in order to get some support. I don't want to name them because I have complicated feelings towards them, but it was a social media mystery school. It was like a social media spiritual school. And there wasn't handholding, but there was a video library of a lot of different, of this person exploring different topics from a spiritual lens. And while she is also a human and not perfect, I found that being able to go through the library um, was really helpful and that the messages that she led with were around like, yeah, how to ground yourself, how, what are spiritual boundaries? Um, you know, just these basic things around like energetic hygiene. And so that was a great place for me to learn until I found more aligned teachers. I am a podcast lover. So I feel like I always call out Pema Children and Tara Brock. I always call them White Lady Pema or White Lady Tara. But I do love them both. And Buddhism has continued to be just a lovely, lovely, supportive presence in my life. As I've deepened my spiritual studies, it's been beautiful for me to like open my heart and mind to the different types of Buddhism, all the, and like the different um, schools of thought. So that's been really beautiful. So let's, let's keep going with this, this Buddhism thread. 
the last, um, your last newsletter that I responded to was all about desire. And you, you talked about how, Mm. well, a, we don't talk about desire enough, but also that like desire paraphrasing, like desire can be this thing that like really like guides you and is a beautiful thing, but it's also dangerous. And, Mm. um, can you, can you talk about like you just, your, your journey with desire? Yes. Yes, I can. I'm so glad you asked this question because it's a big part of the journey. Um, and it starts with a crush. You know, I had a, a crush situationship with a person and it was the type of, I think the type of love and connection I experienced in that toxic dynamic was the type of love, I think of like Icarus and flying too close to the sun. Like it's the type of love where you see God a little bit and then you're destroyed and you realize that like, even though this deep love has occurred, uh, you and the other person are not in a good place to, to hold it together. And in that relationship, I acted out and I said something mean to that person. Something mean that I think in many partnerships, people would probably be like, that wasn't cool, but would keep moving. But for this person, they were like, that was extremely hurtful. And I no longer feel safe in any sort of connection with you. And it was uh, like very, it was a moment of accountability that was so painful and humbling um and hard you know it was really hard the shame was intense so it was it was actually in that moment and i want to bring in an avatar the last airbender quote i love that quote in cora where she like you know loses her bending ability and she channels ang and ang says when we are at our lowest we are most open to change and i think that's really true so in that moment i was really reflecting on like why did I say this mean thing? Why did I think it was okay? And through that self-reflection, I realized that I had such a covert and passive relationship with my own desires that I didn't even have the capacity to name my desires because it was so painful to desire something. And it was really, I think, rooted in in my experiences of like being a minority person, being a person with like an alternative gender identity and sexuality before my time and just feeling crushingly asexualized by my peers and community. And the deep, that, that experience really created a lot of grief and sadness and anger and resentment, like all these emotions around desire that felt like, I think the story was like, I'm, I'm never going to get what I want. So to want is painful. To want is actually to engage with disappointment. And that is so painful that I can't feel any of it. And so it was just leading me into situations where I was getting my needs met primarily through manipulation and it was extremely passive. And I think as a conflict navigator, that is something I come back to. Like, 
when people tell me they're obsessing over a moment or a fight, a lot of times my questions are like, well, what is the underlying need or desire that you're holding on to passively? Like, what are you doing indirectly and what, how can we do it more directly? So when I realized my feelings about desire, that is actually when I turned to my podcasting app and I just searched the word desire and I came across Tara Brock's meditation um, and this great podcast where she talks about how like, and I quoted this in, in my most recent newsletter, she clarifies, she talks a lot of, because all I had up until that moment, this was maybe in 2018, was this idea of like, desire is suffering. And I, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't really unpacked that. So Tara Brock really talked about how desire is the glue that holds the universe together. And she spoke to this idea that Buddhism, particularly Vipassana Buddhism, is about having open hands and experiencing the world, but not attaching or clinging to anything, um, but allowing the de- desire to be felt and, and just allowing it to move through you. Such an abstract and beautiful concept. I don't think I really understood that until I chose to move away from my community in Los Angeles and what became really clear to me as I was moving and I was experiencing so much beauty and love. I had the desire to not move. I was like, I want to cling to this. I want to hold on to it. But it was so clear to me. I was like, oh, if what I would be holding on to is not the beauty and love, because I, I don't think you can hold on to love that way. I think I would be holding on to my fear that I would never experience love again. And I was like, oh, if I try and cling, all of this will rot. I actually need to move with it and I need to let it go in order to continue to experience it. And so that is how I started moving towards my desires very slowly was with the wisdom of white lady Tara and just um, really she was uh, opening for me was this idea that when we desire something, we're ultimately longing for our inner star. I think it's such a beautiful turn of phrase. And we're longing for this like deeper, larger connection. Um, I obviously experienced desire for like Doritos and other things that is not my inner star. But I do think that like sometimes when I feel that deep hunger, it's like, oh, this is a sign to turn inward and connect. And to, I think when I did that, and when I do that, I'm able to meet my need for connection in a powerful and deep way. And it allows some of that disappointment to resolve and creates capacity and hope and optimism for me to be connected to my desires. So I started becoming acquainted with Tara Brock in my 20s when I had... I randomly had this Buddhist therapist who used a lot of her radical acceptance techniques. And when I, in my early thirties, moved away from Bloomington, Indiana to Chicago to attend grad school, um, I used radical acceptance. The book is sort of a way of continuing to do 
the growth that I started with this therapist. And for anybody listening who is like, yeah, that sounds great, but what? I I just want to say that like asking these questions about like what does our heart really truly desire and what are we clinging to? And it took me mm. like a decade, maybe longer to get to the point where I even knew how to be not just honest with myself. I think that I was always to some extent honest with myself, but like knew, had done enough of the work and like had had a capacity for self-compassion in order for those questions to lead me to solace and acceptance, Mm. you know? So, I mean, it, they are incredibly profound, but they're not always quick answers, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I think often I just made a little, a little social media post about this, but I'm always asking myself, like, how can I do less? Mm. And I think in key moments, um, Sometimes we're so ready to do, but the answer might just be to sit with the question. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. And when I began my spiritual studies, there was this idea because you're, you know, you're learning, you're being exposed to all this esoteric philosophy and ideas, ideas that have really been passed down for like hundreds, thousands of years. And it shows because they're hard to understand And they're like little riddles. And the invitation is not to muscle through it. It's not to use your mind to figure it out, but to almost engage the fullness of your spirit to uh, sit with it and listen in. Um, And similarly, when you start asking yourself these self-reflective questions, especially around desire, which can be so confusing or like um, have some trickster energy. There's so much that we are told to desire in this lifetime. So I think when we slow down and tune in to our true desires that are authentic to ourselves, um, it can take a little bit of time for those to come forward. Yeah, I like that, the trickster energy of desire. I mean, well, you talked before about how you were getting your desires met through passive means or manipulation. And I mean, just calling out that those are defense mechanisms, you know, and not you being bad or evil, but ways that you've, you've learned how to protect yourself and take care of yourself that were no longer serving you. Does that sound true? It's so true. Yeah. And I think in doing conflict work, I often, well, I often just try and own like, yeah, the shadow is big. Okay. I'm, I'm a manipulative person, Um, but we all are. And in the first episode of my podcast, I tell this story about like um, the story about the golden Buddha. And basically just to say, we all have defense mechanisms. We all have emotional armoring that's meant to keep us safe. And I think if we can hold that, that we all have this armor 
there's a way we can look at it with neutrality. I think that we sometimes have harmful behaviors like narcissism or manipulation. Um, excuse me, because it works. Like, yeah, manipulation works. And that was a like very useful way to get our needs met, likely as children, maybe. And I think that a lot of my work is asking people to step into the present with me and to release some of those habits and strategies that we formed as children and to think about like what are the conscious habits and strategies we want to have as adults. And to me, that's like so key to getting desire met, which is ultimately what I'm interested in. You know, I think my younger self, if I heard like, oh, I listened to this podcast and did a meditation where I connected with my inner star and that like helped me dissolve my disappointment and engage with my desires. I'd be like, what? I don't want to <laughs> meditate with myself. I want to touch another person. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? But I think it is when we can ground into ourselves, when we can like feel into our own energy. To me, that's like where... That like the ability to be present and to feel sensation without expectation is the beginning of desire and pleasure work. For me, that's like kind of where it emerges. Hmm. Slight tangent. Tell us about your upcoming class and the cohort. Yes. I'm really excited because I have been taking internet classes for a long time. And I've been studying, okay, I've been observing, and I feel that I've created, maybe not the perfect one, but very close to perfect. And I've also pulled in two of my very dear and brilliant friends as co-teachers. So it's going to be a community, it's going to be a community affair. It's going to be like a roller coaster of friendship and love. Um and it's called New Cycles, a course for self-accountability. And the focus is really on understanding our emotions, understanding how we can heal, um, and basically how we can claim our power through self-accountability and self-care. Um, and a lot of it is, there's definitely going to be information shared, but a lot of it is like, how do we actually hold boundaries? Like we need to not just talk about that, but practice that together in community. Where do people learn more about it? If people go to my Substack, they will find a link in there to the wait list, which is the first step in getting some more information. Perfect. And so you said wait list, like, is it wait is this the first time you've held it or it's the first time okay nice that's yeah. great so you can get on the ground floor if you're on the wait list there will be others and you'll you opulence will be learning from them i'm sure too i will definitely be learning this is the first group and i think that's why it feels so precious i'm yeah. actually sending all participants a like a little package when they enroll and nice. I'm putting so much effort in I'm like going to Goodwill and like looking for cute stuff and I'm like in the future this will probably be <laughs> a little more automated 
but because yeah. it's my first time there's just so much love i'm pouring into it um and it's really exciting for anyone who comes along and yeah if you join the waitlist i'll email you the link with more information like same day that's awesome no this has been great i I don't, I've been writing down. I'm like, oh, right. I want to talk about this later. Like so many ideas flowing. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much for having me on. I love this podcast and I feel oh. so honored to be a part of it. My pleasure. <laughs>